man. Um, you can let me use this one now, and I'll give this one later. All right, Acts chapter six is where I want you to turn. Uh, a couple of things before I minister. Uh, I preached on Wednesday night a sermon uh, called "Healing from Oppression," and I made an appeal that tonight I wanted to have a testimony service uh, about what God did. And so we're going to start uh, in just a second. Uh, I believe April Reina is going to testify. Is that correct? Okay, just stay right there. I'll have the microphone taken back there. And then Sky Mayfield uh, is also, uh, or oh, you already have a mic. Okay. Uh, and then Sky Mayfield is going to testify as well. But before they do that, uh, I wanted to uh, reiterate the announcement uh, about our impact team that's going to be going to Tehuacan in San Jose, Mexico on August 16th. That's a Tuesday. Uh, flying uh, from Juarez uh, to Mexico City uh, and then driving to uh, Tehuacan uh, and San Jose. Uh, so it's leaving Tuesday, coming back Saturday. It's a fairly short trip, uh, but it's very, very much worthwhile. Uh, what you're going to see there uh, is an incredibly fruitful area where we planted churches, have numerous workers uh, and disciples there laboring. We have a church planting center in San Jose. Uh, and it, it's a, it'll be a thrilling uh, opportunity for you to see. So the cost of that uh, that I want to give you tonight uh, for transportation, uh, and that's what you have to give to the church, uh, is $450. That'll cover your airfare, uh, the van, and gas uh, while you're there. That's $450 per person. So if it's a married couple, it's obviously uh, $450 each. So... Uh, that covers airfare, uh, van, transportation, gasoline while you're there. Uh, there's also going to be hotel cost on top of that. The hotel uh, is $60 a night. So if you room with uh, two or three single people, you divide the 60. If it's a married couple, obviously, uh, I mean, you could split it if you want to, but um, uh, it's $60 for the married couple uh, and then food on top of that. So just calculate all that. Food's relatively inexpensive. The hotel, relatively inexpensive. Uh, and you need to pay a, four, a $50 deposit um, if you're going to go, if you're going to sign up and go. Uh, and then the balance of that needs to be paid by uh, the last Sunday of this month, which is July 31st. So if you have any questions about that, uh, you can ask Pastor Glenn, uh, you can ask Serge Sr., uh, you can ask Angel Medina. All of them are involved in uh, uh, organizing this. So, But let us know as soon as possible because actually we only have a few slots left. We're going to take one van of ten. I mean, if, another, if enough people sign up, we could possibly take another van, but we would need a full van if we're going to do a second van. So, uh, so let us know right away. Uh, and then in order to sign, you have to pay a $50 deposit, and then the balance will be due the last Sunday. So let's get to these testimonies. Uh, April, you have your mic right there? Okay, why don't you stand and go ahead and share with us briefly uh, what Jesus has done for you, and then wherever Sky is, uh, he's going to go next. Okay, sorry. Um, my name is April Reina, for anybody that doesn't know me. Um, I didn't grow up in the church. Um, I came from a broken home. Uh, my parents were divorced when I was three. Um, I grew up with my grandparents. 
Um, I got saved in 2000, and um, from 2000 to 2016, um, you know, I served God, and I remember being in Pastor Puglisi's church in Houston, and I was on fire. And uh, just over the years, you know, we lost Nick, and my mother-in-law had a stroke, and I already had a lot of of remorse and and just hurt from my dad when he left us and my mom and my sister and I just I held a lot of resentment and you know pastor's been preaching a lot about pockets of resentment and and having stones in your heart and I had a lot of those but you know what I sat in the church and I would listen to the sermons but it never really would touch me enough to raised my hand that I knew that I was backslidden. And I tell you this because I know there's a lot of you here that are sitting here that don't have your hearts right and that you think that, oh, well, I come to church and, oh, I read my Bible here and there or I go to outreach or I show up Sunday morning and Sunday night, but it doesn't matter if your heart's not right with God. It doesn't matter where you sit in the church, if you sit in the front, if you sit in the back. Well, about a month and a half ago, I experienced this awful anxiety, and I've always dealt with something like that in my in my just my whole life. And you know, I was so broken, and I just didn't know what to do. Um, but thank God that I have my friend Edith. Because she just dropped everything, came to me, and I told her I'm not right with God. I had a lot of hurt and anger towards different people, and I knew that things were happening for a reason. And so she prayed a sinner's prayer with me. That was on June 2nd. Well, you know, it's been a progress, and and every day he would tell me that week, you need to call your dad. And I was like, really? You know, my dad? But of all people, you know, I, I did it. I did it, and it felt so good to have that burden lifted up. And I, the next day, he would tell me, "Call your mom, call your sister, call your best friend that you haven't talked to in five years. Re, you know, ask for forgiveness." And I did that. And you know, little by little, he's helped me, and he's helped me grow. And and one things he, one of the things he told me was, "You're not reading your Bible and praying." And I wasn't, you know, I haven't, hadn't opened my Bible to read on my own or just pray every morning and every night in years. And I'm being honest with you because I want you to see how transparent I want to be with you that, that when you don't have God near you, by you, in your heart, that the world seems like it's going to break. And when you have God in your heart, everything doesn't seem like that anymore. And now I pray and read my Bible, and thanks to Pastor that he's counseled me. And, you know, I just want to just let you know that if you're here and you're sitting here and, and you're not right with God and you're a church person and, and you know it, you know, get your heart right. And if there's anybody here that's not saved, give your life to God because it's the best thing that's happened to me recently. Amen. Hallelujah. Thank the Lord. Um, for those who don't know, my name is Sky. Um, it's been about 
nine months. It has been probably the most difficult nine months of my entire life. I put myself in a very difficult situation. Life says it has its peaks and its valleys. Well, I threw myself down this really deep, dark valley. In the process, I took my own family with us. I had this really strong weight of depression that ended up on my back, too. I know I wear a a smile for most of the time, so you don't know it. Um, And instead of asking God for help because I was down, it's like I was arguing, why am I in this situation? I knew it was my fault, but I was trying to figure it out on my own. Um, Financially, things weren't uh, where they should have been. Uh, I'm with three different temp agencies. Um, I'm trying my hardest to to get back where I should have been, but that's the problem is it was all me. I'm trying to do this. I'm trying to do that. And um, pastor preached about the weight, and I felt that weight. When we went into the fast, my, my faith, very honestly, guys, has dwindled down to maybe a couple grains of sand. I, 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 desperation is, is the definition of how, I've, how I feel. But I know that I am a child of God. I know that I attend this church. I know that God is real. I know I had a very real encounter with him when I raised my hand and I gave my life to Christ. And I know I went through this difficulty for a reason. Why now? I don't know. Tuesday when the fast started. I mean, I've been spending months and months trying to find a full-time, decent paying job so I can get us back on our feet. I go to pray in the morning. After I go home, I'm going to hit it hard. I get an email to apply for some, uh, it was a benefit job or something. I didn't really know too much. I applied for it. They sent me four tests to take. I took all four tests and passed them great. I did a phone interview. They asked me, Scott, can you come in tomorrow at nine uh, for an interview? I was like, sure. I went to the interview Later that evening, Wednesday night at 6 o'clock, they gave me a call and they told me, you know what, Sky, you got the job. It, it, it's from 6 in the morning to 2.30. You got Saturdays and Sundays off. We'll work with your school schedule. You know what, guys? You, don't, you need this much faith. Yeah. You need this much faith and God will do it. If you you, you got to believe that. And if you don't believe that, then this weight that you're carrying, it's going to continue to be a burden until you let it go God can't move in your life. You got to let the burdens that you're holding on to go so God can move into your life. Amen. Hallelujah. Thank God for that. Amen. Amen. Acts chapter 6 is where I want to uh, minister from and I want to preach a sermon uh, I've entitled Winning the Race War in America. Uh, recent events, if you've been paying attention at all to the news over the last several months, uh, and especially this last week, um, uh, we're seeing, uh, at least in the short-term uh, history of our nation, he, recent history, uh, unprecedented circumstances and events. And I really felt... When I woke up uh, Thursday morning or Friday morning after having, uh, 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 you know, uh, followed the news uh, the night before of the police officers being killed uh, in Dallas, Texas, I felt something. I felt 
like a shift had happened in our country and not for uh, the good at all. There's a level of violence. Uh, there's a level of animosity. There's a level of uh, uh, racial hatred uh, and bitterness and anger uh, that is fomenting in our country. Uh, and uh, it is... Uh, uh, escalating. It's not uh, dissipating. It's not just one event or one situation, but it's uh, clicking all over the country uh, as we're reading the reports uh, of what are what is happening. And I, I felt compelled to preach on it uh, today, tonight, in this service. I already had uh, direction for this morning. Uh, I thought a little bit about preaching this sermon on uh, this morning, but I uh, felt otherwise as I was praying uh, which sermon to preach when, and so this one I'm presenting to you tonight. I think that this is an issue that needs to be dealt with from the pulpit because we need to hear God's voice in these circumstances. I remember other situations. When 9-11 happened, I felt the same thing that I feel now, and it takes sometimes those uh, um, uh, events like that that really shift the national uh, conversation and the spiritual dimension that's happening uh, uh, in our country. And it's not just uh, uh, the actual racism that we're seeing fomenting, uh, uh, but it's the war on terror. We had the incident uh, uh, that took place recently in Orlando, Florida, and before that, San Bernardino, California. And so all of these things are happening, and it is profound, uh, and it does get our attention uh, and God does uh, uh, want to speak to us. Because if all you do is listen to the media, uh, read the editorial page, uh, you're not going to get a right and a righteous perspective. I think that we were all shocked. Now, some people are uh, disconnected. They don't ever read newspapers. They just kind of drift around in la-la land. But most of us that uh, are sort of plugged into events were shocked at what happened in Dallas last Thursday night, the circumstances were that uh, this happened during a protest. People were protesting about the killing of two black men by police officers earlier in the week uh, that were caught on video. And if you happen to see those videos, they're quite shocking. And so all around the country, uh, there were various uh, kinds of uh, protests uh, uh, and sit-ins and vigils and such things that were going on. One of the larger ones was in Dallas, and it was there uh, that the police that were assigned to protect the protesters, uh, ironically enough, the protesters were protesting uh, uh, these uh, police killings. Uh, somebody opened fire, uh, killed five police officers uh, uh, Thursday evening, and seven others were wounded just since then. It's escalated. That's what I mean by a shift happening. Just headlines since then uh, that I have read, and I know there are many others. Uh, uh, one of them said, America in tatters, and it had a picture of the American flag shredded on the cover of the newspaper. Another one uh, 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 had an article in some feature stories called The, Ru uh, the Coming Race War in America. Uh, another said, is there any slowing down the race war in America? Just this morning I read, gunfire hits the San Antonio police headquarters. And another one said, cops attacked uh, in St. Paul, uh, Minnesota. And there have been other incidences. Uh, 
And I'm sure this week there'll be other circumstances that play out as we keep our eye on what's happening. So I want to draw your attention to this subject tonight, sobering subject, winning the race war in America. And I want you to uh, follow me as I read Acts chapter 6, beginning in verse 1, familiar verse. And the story here, though, is what God uh, drew me to uh, as I thought about preaching to you about this subject tonight. Now, in those days when the number of the disciples was multiplying, there arose a complaint against the Hebrews by the Hellenists. So this is a conflict within the church by two different people groups. Because their widows were neglected in the daily distribution, then the twelve summoned the multitude of the disciples and said, It is not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Therefore, brethren, seek out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. But we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And the saying pleased the whole multitude, and they chose Stephen a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit, and Philip, Procurus, uh, Nicanor, Timon, uh, Parmenas, and Nicholas, uh, a proselyte from Antioch, uh, whom they set before the apostles. Uh, and when they had prayed, uh, they laid hands on them. Then the word of God spread, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests uh, were obedient uh, unto the faith. Let's pray. I want you to bow your heads as we ask God's grace and favor tonight. Father, I thank you tonight for this opportunity to minister your word. Touch our hearts, O God. I pray that you would deposit love and forgiveness and a dimension of grace, Lord, that will bring healing and reconciliation. Lord, I pray for the gospel to be manifest in our midst, Lord, that is a message to all men and all women in every nation, of every race, and every economic background, Lord, I pray that you would stir us afresh with a great vision and burden to propagate the gospel of Jesus Christ throughout the world, and we thank you in Jesus' name. So let's talk about the sin of racism, the sin of racism. Now, of course, this is nothing new. The world has been steeped in racism From the very beginning, hatred, anger, violence, prejudice of every kind, racial, cultural, social, uh, economic. Our country certainly uh, has had its history. uh, And again, we're seeing it fomenting again. uh, But we've certainly had our history in this regard. Uh, There was a time uh, of slavery in our country. Uh, we view that back to the colonial period, the early part of the 1800s. Uh, uh, then the Civil War came, uh, and there was emancipation. Uh, slavery was ba- uh, uh, banned, no longer a practice. Uh, but the racial prejudice uh, of one race toward another uh, continued. We are a nation of immigrants, uh, and we know that various people groups uh, don't get along. You can go into uh, the larger cities uh, of our country. 
country, New York, Philadelphia, Detroit, Chicago, uh, uh, Milwaukee, uh, uh, Miami, Los Angeles. Uh, you can go into these cities uh, and you'll see cities divided. Uh, you go into neighborhoods uh, and they're all one kind or one race. Uh, and then you cross the main street uh, and you go into another neighborhood uh, and it's all one kind or one race. Uh, uh, people of certain economic uh, uh, backgrounds, uh, uh, they live in one area and other people live uh, uh, in a different area. Just in my lifetime, I was born on the ancient date of 1954. In the 1950s and 60s in our country, Jim Crow laws were still in place. For those of you who don't know what that is, uh, that's whites-only bathrooms, uh, whites-only drinking fountains, uh, uh, and other uh, places that were whites-only. Those are called uh, uh, Jim Crow laws. Those weren't totally banished uh, uh, until uh, the 1960s, and that's just... Uh, uh, during my lifetime, uh, there are certain people uh, that one group of people will not associate with uh, or be able to identify with or uh, have anything in common with. And all of this uh, uh, can simmer under the surface uh, and it can explode into violence uh, as we are seeing play out uh, in our cities across the landscape today and across our headlines. So having said that and laying that groundwork, let's examine this text. This is the first real problem and test of the early church. Up until this point, there had been some persecutions, no doubt, and there was persecution after this chapter. But really, from the beginning of Acts, when they're filled with the Holy Ghost and the church starts forming, uh, it had been nothing but revival. Uh, people are getting saved, uh, and they're being born again, and there's incredible miracles, uh, and the church is coming together, uh, and now it's starting to function uh, as a community. Again, miracles of healing. People are getting a revelation of Christ. This is a record of the historic birth of the New Testament church. And so as the gospel is spreading throughout the city of Jerusalem, all kinds of people groups are getting saved. Jerusalem, especially during the Feast of Pentecost, was a multicultural and a multiracial city. And these people are coming together in the church and they're starting to... Uh, function uh, as a community. Uh, and in the midst of all this, uh, a problem along racial and cultural divides uh, emerges. Verse 1, there arose a complaint against the Hebrews by the Hellenists because their widows were neglected in the daily distribution. Now, this is happening, keep in mind, within the church. One group against another group. In this case, both the Hebrews and the Hellenists are Jews. The Hebrews are Jews from Jerusalem. They maintain the culture of Jews in Jerusalem. The Hellenists, these were individuals 
that lived outside of Jerusalem. They had assimilated into other nations throughout Europe, some of them in northern Africa, and they had embraced the language of these other nations and some of the customs of the other nations. And so as the church is coming together, these two groups aren't mixing very well because the Jews of Jerusalem are a little proud and a little resentful of these other Jews uh, who have embraced and taken on uh, other language and other culture, uh, and they view them as having polluted their culture. And so there's a complaint. Against the Hebrews by the Hellenists. So that is what it says, uh, but you can read into this story and know there is hostility There is anger. There is prejudice at work here. These groups are not assimilating. They're not mixing. There's the Jews from Jerusalem, and there's the Hellenists, and they're maintaining their distinct identity within the church. One group feels neglected by the ministry. And by the way, there's always a group or people in the church that feel neglected. And in this case, it was this group. Now, again, we don't know any more about this situation than what we read. But again, you can imagine the words that must have been spoken and the anger and the rancor and the ill will and the resentment that is fomenting. And it erupted to such a degree that it took several disciples got their attention and they decided we've got to deal with this situation within the church. And again, they're all Jews and they're all Christians, but language and culture created a division. One group feels superior to another group. And this had become an issue In the church, in these early days of Holy Ghost uh, revival. Now let's look at how prejudice finds expression. And of course the Bible, as I said a moment ago, is filled with the history of this. We can go back to the garden. We know that in the garden, man's sin separated him from God. Man's sin separated him from the proper function of his own conscience. And also man's sin separated him from people. Now, hatred and jealousy and anger and unforgiveness and offense and bitterness and pride and a sense of superiority become the context and the content, rather, of the heart of man. And as cultures grew and people spread and populations increase, this divide becomes more and more pronounced. And we see this natural distrust of people who are not like us. And the world is filled with a lot of people who are not like us. And whether those differences are economic or racial or cultural or historical, it matters little. And, of course, the Bible is filled with 
the evidence of racial hatred manifesting itself in violence. The descendants of Esau became a people known as the Edomites. And while technically they're Jews, they were the descendants of Jacob, but because Esau sold his birthright and he separated himself from his father and from his brother and his descendants become the Edomites and they are the only people in the Bible that are known as a godless people. They weren't pagans. They had no false gods, no religion of any kind. They were a godless people and they lived on the periphery outside, just outside the boundaries of where Israel was. And there was a lot of animosity and bitterness and hatred between the descendants of Saul and the descendants of his brother Jacob. And that hatred and that bitterness and that anger was passed on generationally. We know that there was a great divide in the Bible spelled out between the Jew and the Gentile. And this was powerfully influential in the early church because when the day of Pentecost occurred in Acts chapter 2 and the disciples are filled with the Holy Ghost, it took fully 10 years before we see the first real effort to reach Gentiles. They were governed by their prejudice, even though they're filled with the Holy Spirit. They didn't want to mix. Remember what Peter said in Acts chapter 2. He said, no, no, I can't hang around with Gentiles. I can't associate with them. They're unclean. That's 10 years after Pentecost by the leader of the church. In Jesus' day, the quintessential oppressed group of people uh, were the Samaritans. You read about them in the Bible. Parable of the Good Samaritan, the uh, story in John chapter 4 about the woman at the well. She was a Samaritan. Samaritans were half Jew and half Gentile. They were the descendants of Jews who had remained behind in Jerusalem uh, during captivity. Uh, You remember when Nebuchadnezzar conquered Jerusalem uh, and took Israel off to captivity, uh, he he left certain of the Jews there to tend the farms uh, and to do uh, tasks of that nature, uh, and he put authority over them and a king and so forth. uh, And then these Jews uh, began to mix with the Gentiles. uh, And then when the captivity, uh, the people came back from captivity, uh, they ostracized those people, uh, and they lived in their own area called Samaria. They were divided, they were ostracized, uh, they were mocked, they were despised, uh, and they were mistreated, and they were abused, uh, and they were thought to be by the Jews less than human. Now, there doesn't have to be any violation for prejudice to manifest itself in a person's heart. The potential for it is in us all. How you think about different people different than yourself. All you have to do sometimes is look at someone. You don't know them. You've never interacted with that individual, but immediately you form an opinion about that person, what he must be like. Oh, he must be a thief. Titus, 
in his book, it says, A prophet of their own said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. Now, while some of them may be, uh, he is speaking uh, uh, about people from the island of Crete. Uh, they may have been a notorious, uh, uh, sinful, and unclean people. Uh, uh, this is a little bit of a generation to say, a generalization rather, to say that all of them are like that. Prejudice isn't always based on fact or having known someone. It's an opinion that is formed and then projected onto other people. And, of course, this isn't the only incident in the church. You know, uh, just a little side note here. I was sharing this with a, uh, one of our pastors this afternoon when I was talking about the sermon to him. And it amazes me. When I get my mind and heart locked in on a subject, I think, well, I know the Bible talks about it here, and I know the Bible talks about it there, so I'll look at those two, and then I find out that it's here, and it's over there, and it's throughout the whole Bible. And that's the way this sermon kind of came together, because there are so many incidences of it. And what grabbed my attention is that the incidences that we read about it are among the people of God. In the Old Testament, as I said, Jew and Gentile. But in the New Testament, it's also there, as I've already indicated, both from our text and other incidences. Listen to what it says in James. Chapter 2, my brethren, do not hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ with partiality. For if there should come into your assembly a man with gold rings and fine apparel, and there should also come in a poor man in filthy clothes, and you pay attention to the one with fine clothes and say to him, you sit here in a good place, and you say to the poor man, you stand there or sit here at my footstool, have you not shown partiality among yourselves and become judges of evil thoughts. So the Bible calls this kind of prejudging evil, and it's happening in the church. So here are three truths I think that we can identify about racism. The first is that most people, us included, will find a way to separate ourselves. It's an attribute of our fallen nature. And again, I don't have time to list all the various reasons why we do this. Some of it is simply rooted in pride. I'm better. I'm superior. They're lesser. They're of a different race, a different economic status. I'm rich. I can't hang around with a poor person. Or I have this kind of employment. I don't want to run around with someone else. And so we find reasons to separate ourselves. In Luke 18, we have the incident that took place in the temple. In verse 11, the Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank you that I am not like other men extortioners and unjust and adulterers, or even as this tax collector, and there was somebody that he looked down on in the temple there with him, this tax collector, and the tax collector standing afar off would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. So the Pharisee is overwhelmed with his own sense of superiority. In his mind, I am separate from that kind of individual. That kind of person is less than who I am. Anybody different than us is suspect, and it can be a big difference. It can be a slight difference, but the key point is difference. Secondly, racism is very easy to spot in others, but we don't acknowledge its presence in our own lives. It can be a major blind spot. 
I think some of the loudest voices that are crying racism today are the biggest racists. What we see as ugly and distasteful in others is acceptable in ourselves. Our prejudice is acceptable and yours is not. This is a quirk of human nature. We project our own deficiencies and our own issues onto other people. For example, you'll hear some people sometimes say, there's no love in the church. Right? We hear that. Well, usually what that is, is somebody who has a very unpleasant disposition. They repel people. They're not friendly themselves or they're not able to extract from people around them what they want. And so they take their issues and project them on everybody else. You people this and you have no love for us. And the third thing we can say about racism is that it is a learned behavior And it can be passed on from one generation to the next. I read this recently in the book of Ezekiel, chapter 35. Because you have an ancient hatred. It says that. Because you have an ancient hatred. In other words, it's passed on from one generation to the next. uh, And have shed the blood of the children of Israel by the power of the sword uh, at the time of their calamity when their iniquity came to an end. Uh, That scripture is referring to the inhabitants of Mount Seir uh, who had a hatred for Israel uh, and took advantage uh, of a weakness and attacked them. Uh, uh, Violation occurs. uh, Hatred results. uh, And generations later... uh, That same bitterness and anger and hatred is still alive. You ever notice children, by their very nature and when they're in their innocence, they don't have prejudice. They'll they'll play with anybody that wants to play. Of any race, any economic status, that is until they get a little older and they're taught. Oh, no, no. You hang around with those people. You don't, you don't run around. They're not like us. See, this is something that is learned over time as they grow. So let me talk about the effect of the gospel. Do you know when the most segregated hour in America is? 11 o'clock a.m. Sunday morning. It's the most segregated hour in America. Let's examine, before I get back to that, the ministry of Jesus. He is known and was known during his era, and it's what upset a lot of people, but he became known for not respecting the racial, cultural, social, and gender divides. He didn't respect them. You weren't supposed to talk to Samaritans. You weren't supposed to interact with um, people of another, uh, with Gentiles. You weren't supposed to talk to women. You weren't supposed to interact with someone who was a Samaritan. But Jesus did. He had no respect. 
He interacted with anyone at any time and in any place. He spoke with women that he wasn't supposed to speak to. He touched the leper that he wasn't supposed to touch. It was forbidden. He interacted with sinners and with tax collectors. And this was abhorrent to the religious observers of the time. And initiated, he initiated revival in Samaria in John chapter 4. And he wasn't even supposed to be there. You walked around Samaria. Samaria was actually along a main road. But the Jews had beaten a path around Samaria. So if they were going to a place and Samaria was in the way or on the way, they would actually go around so they wouldn't have to walk through the midst of these unclean people. Jesus went right to where they were. He had no respect for the cultural, racial, social, economic, and gender divides. Listen to how it played out in John chapter 4. A woman of Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, give me to drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Then the woman of Samaria said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask a drink from me, a Samaritan? For Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. I mean, she she doesn't think this should be happening. But see, with Jesus, everyone's the same. When it came to the gospel message... All were worthy of its presentation, no matter who they were, where they were from, uh, what color their skin was, uh, and what race they were. You know, today, there are a lot of people who gather together, read the Bible, sing worship songs, and have no conviction about racism. Should the church, I'm just asking the question, Should the church of Jesus Christ be identified along racial lines? Should it be defined along socioeconomic lines? Is that what God intended? That there'd be a church for this group and another one for this group and then rich people would go to this one and then... Was that his vision? Do you really think it was? In the text, this is prejudice at work. But the difference is that they were together and they did successfully work it out. God did deal with Peter to go to the Gentiles and to shed his prejudice against them. In Acts chapter 11, uh, they go to Antioch. You can read the account for yourself. Uh, They're preaching to the Jews, uh, but then Gentiles are getting saved, uh, and they don't quite know what to do. uh, And so they send for Barnabas, uh, and they begin to cultivate uh, this move of God among the Gentiles. Uh, This was a difficult task uh, for God to break through uh, in the church. One of the frustrations that 
My family and I experienced in pioneering the church in London. In London at that time, there were 166 languages spoke. London uh, is one of the most, if not the most, cosmopolitan city uh, uh, in all the world. There are people from every continent on earth. Uh, London is the place where oppressed peoples flee to. Uh, if you remember uh, in Iran when... Uh, uh, the dictator there was persecuting Kurdish people. Uh, all of a sudden, they all show up in London, uh, uh, and you start seeing them everywhere. It's a multicultural, uh, multiracial uh, uh, city, uh, all kinds of socioeconomic strata, all kinds of different customs and cultures. Uh, and one of the frustrations was, uh, as we're ministering there and preaching, uh, we want to reach everybody. We want to reach the Brits. Uh, we want to reach people from uh, uh, Jamaica, from Africa. Uh, from uh, there were a lot of immigrants uh, coming into England at that time from Eastern Europe when the Iron Curtain fell. Uh, and so we've got a vision for this. And one of the frustrations was uh, that people would come and genuinely get saved uh, and then their families or other people would pull on them to go to their church where the Africans worship or where the Irish worship or where uh, this group of people worship. And it was the most frustrating thing because these people would genuinely get saved and he was birthing them uh, under our ministry uh, and they would run off to a church that was identified along racial, cultural, or national lines. Today, across the landscape, the reason I say that we have the most uh, uh, segregated hour in America is 11 a.m. Sunday morning because there's the all-white church. There's the all-Korean church. There's the all-Hispanic church. There's the all-black church. Do you really believe that that is the intent of the gospel? When Jesus came, do you believe that he wanted his church divided up in all of these groups and lines of division? And is that the body of Christ? Is that the church that Jesus had a vision for? So let's examine the plan of God for a moment. What could have happened? In our text, what could have happened is, if this wasn't resolved by the direction of the Holy Spirit and some wise leadership, what could have happened is either the Hellenists or the uh, Jews from Jerusalem that were all believers together, one of the groups would have split off and formed their own church. That's what happens today. Go start your own church. But what we see here is that they did not ignore the issue. They did not feed uh, the prejudice that is at work. They treated it like you treat any other issue of the heart uh, that needs to be addressed. It's just like anything else. Uh, the gospel is about changing the heart. It's about affecting the inner man. It's about uh, 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 cleansing us uh, and enabling us to shed uh, the things that bring division uh, uh, between us and God, us and our conscience, uh, and us uh, and one another. The gospel is about change, uh, transformation of heart uh, into the image uh, of Jesus Christ. And so 
they dealt with this issue of racism. God dealt with the issue of racism when he sent that vision for Peter to see where he saw all the animals together. And God said to Peter, I want you to take those animals and eat them. And Peter said, no, some of those animals are unclean. And God said, I don't want you calling anything or anyone unclean because that's what they were doing to the Gentiles. They were unclean. They were not fit to be in the presence of a Jew. And so God himself gave a vision and brought revelation to deal with the issue and pull people together and not divide them. Listen to Acts chapter 1. You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. (laughs) Well, you get outside of Jerusalem, now you're going to start bumping into and running into people uh, that are different than you. You're going to start bumping into Gentiles. Uh, You're going to start uh, bumping into people uh, that are of different races and different cultures. Uh, And God said, I don't want you calling anyone unclean. I want you reaching them. Love them as I have loved them. Do you really think that the idea was... uh, to make sure you keep everybody divided as you go, uh, separate the whites and separate the blacks and separate the Vato Locos. uh, When they get saved, give them their own church. uh, And uh, the Koreans, uh, after all, Asians have nothing in common with white people, and so we'll just divide them uh, and we'll give them all their churches. The gospel was intended to proactively confront the issue of our prejudice and our hatred and our racism. 2 Corinthians 5.16 says, Therefore, from now on, we regard no one according to the flesh. In other words, we're not going to view people uh, by the cultural or by the racial or by the socioeconomic divides. We're going to view them as precious souls uh, uh, that need Jesus Christ. Christianity is intended by God to be its own subculture or even counterculture within a society. We see fellow believers, no matter who they are, as brothers and sisters uh, and not by race or by economics or by culture. When I got saved in the Tucson church... There were Hispanics, there were African Americans, uh, there were hippies, there were convicts, uh, uh, there were professionals, uh, uh, there were single mothers, uh, there were Native Americans, uh, and that's the way it was. And when I got saved, there were only 40 or 50 people in the church, uh, and yet there was this incredible mix of people. uh, I had nothing in common with most of them. There were a few others uh, like me, uh, but there were a lot of others. The majority were people uh, that I had nothing in common with, uh, and yet we learned to love. We no longer viewed each other. Well, he's a Native American and he's an African, but it was an incredible dimension of revival. On the day of Pentecost in Jerusalem at that time, there would have been Asians, Africans, there would have been Europeans that were there. And that was the atmosphere where God poured out the Holy Spirit and they began to preach the gospel. The church in Antioch, as we read about it, beginning in chapter 11, and then we read about it again in chapter 13 of the book of Acts, there was a great diversity in that congregation. In verse 1 of chapter 13, the Bible says, 
Now in the church that was at Antioch, uh, there were certain prophets and teachers. Barnabas, uh, Simeon, who was called Niger, uh, he would have been an African. Lucius of Cyrene, uh, he would have been from Cyprus. Uh, Menaean, uh, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrar- uh, Tetrarch uh, and Saul. And so th- there was this incredible mix uh, of different races uh, and different backgrounds uh, and different historical uh, uh, heritage uh, that were brought together as the church of Jesus Christ. When I read Ephesians chapter 2 in this context, it meant, it meant a lot to me as I read it in the context of this message. Listen to it. Ephesians 2.19. You are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. No racial lines there. No delineation between economic status or cultural issues. A real New Testament church is going to be like a family where race and socioeconomic status and cultural divides are overridden by the fact that we've all been saved and washed in the precious blood of Jesus Christ and we have been reconciled. The church is a place where people can sit side by side who historically and culturally may have nothing at all in common, but the fact that we've been washed in the blood of Jesus, now we're brothers and sisters in Christ. The church is a place where the cowboy fan can sit next to the Raider fan. I waited the whole sermon to say that. (laughs) And love each other. Or at least tolerate each other. Remember Ruth. Ruth is a Moabite. Moabites are a nasty pagan people. They are historical enemies of Israel. And without... Describing the whole story, Ruth speaks to her mother-in-law, who is a Jew. Ruth had married her mother-in-law's son. Her husband, her mother-in-law's son, had died. And now her mother-in-law is going back to Israel. Ruth the Moabite has no connection. There's a cultural divide and a hatred. She has no place. They won't want her. If she goes, uh, there's going to be prejudice against her. Uh, And yet Ruth makes this incredible statement. Uh, She said, your people shall be my people, uh, and your God shall be my God. Uh, And with incredible courage, uh, she crossed over the border from Moab uh, into Israel. uh, And she began the process of breaking the racial divide. Uh, And when she goes into the city, uh, she gets attention. Uh, She's a Moabite. uh, And it was so bad for her initially uh, that Boaz... uh, Uh, The man that she eventually married uh, had to tell uh, all the young men to stay away from her because they would have abused her uh, and cast her aside. And she needed protection. And she needed covering, and it was actually Boaz, uh, a very wealthy Jew, uh, landowner uh, and farmer, uh, who fell in love with Ruth, this Moabite, uh, and married her. uh, And it was out of that lineage that King David came, uh, and eventually the Messiah, Jesus Christ. So if God is into racial divide, wouldn't have that story in the Bible. So let me challenge you tonight. 
because we need to choose a different path. This is something that we have to decide we are going to overcome. We have to overcome this within ourselves. We have to overcome this within the church. And we have to preach a message to all men and women of every nationality, every background. In our text, they don't ignore this. They enact a plan of action to deal with the issue. No, no, they say, we're going to stay together. We're going to fix this problem. We're going to continue as a church. Nobody's leaving. Nobody's going anywhere. We're going to minister to the need. And the reality here when it comes to racial divide is that obedience is never effortless. It's much easier to stay angry and hold on to your prejudice rather than repent and deal with the real issues that are at work in your own heart. We have to fix this in our own hearts. We have to fix this uh, uh, in our own church and in our own congregation. Of course, the media has a lot to say about this. Politicians have a lot to say uh, about this. But I can tell you this much, that no law, no legislation, and no political agenda is going to solve the problem of racism because it's a matter of the heart. The heart has to change. And our calling and our challenge is to pass on revival. And instead of division and instead of prejudice and instead of racism, what the New Testament church did with huge effort and in some cases, the disciples uh, are, are kind of dragged kicking and screaming uh, by God and by the Holy Spirit to break these barriers. They weren't willing. Uh, this was not initiated uh, out of the goodness of their own heart. Uh, God had to speak to them. They had to be challenged. Uh, God had to deal with their hearts. One of the young leaders that was appointed in our text to start healing this divide that was in the church was a young man named Philip. In Acts chapter 8, shortly after Philip is one of the disciples chosen to serve and heal this problem, he goes to Samaria. That's where he goes to preach to people that they considered unclean, unworthy, dirty, different Lesser than we are, he goes there, he feels a compulsion to take the gospel to Samaria. And remember, it was Jesus on the eve of the day of Pentecost that said this gospel is going to go to places like Samaria. And he names Samaria. He preaches the gospel to them. Great revival breaks out. And from there, the Bible says that he's in a desert place and he runs into an African, a person identified as an Ethiopian eunuch. This would have been a Gentile, a non-Jew. And Philip freely crossed these cultural barriers and ministered the gospel. He had no respect for them and he, no respect for the cultural barriers. And he ministered the gospel uh, to this one Ethiopian eunuch. Uh, this Ethiopian eunuch got saved, uh, was baptized in water by Philip, uh, and then Philip gets caught up uh, uh, by the Spirit and ends up somewhere else. Uh, and history tells us uh, that this Ethiopian eunuch went back to Ethiopia, and the Christian heritage uh, of that nation is rooted in that individual because a barrier 
the racial delineation was not recognized by Philip. He preached the gospel. Just like our children, some of you that are maybe my age could be younger. You you grew up in a in a in a background of drugs, maybe betrayals and abuses of every kind. And so when we have our own children, our vision for them is they don't have to do drugs. They're not going to watch mom and dad get divorced. They're not going to have to experience the betrayals of life. In the same way, they also don't have to grow up with the racial hatred and prejudice that some of us were raised with because we are called to pass on a different spirit, the spirit of revival that is forgiveness and love for all men and women and for all people. I realize that our city here uh, is primarily Hispanic, I think somewhere in the neighborhood of 80%, and so our church is going to reflect that. But Hispanics are not the only people group in our city. Uh, there are African Americans. There are Orientals. Uh, there are even some white people. There are. And our church, a real church, reflects that element. This is how God sees the world. 1 John 2, 2 says, He is the sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but for the sins of the whole world. Winning the race war in America begins right here at the altar. Let's bow our heads this evening. Every head bowed, every eye closed. Amen. Thank God for His grace and his love and his favor. Feel God's great blessing here today. And as our heads are bowed and as our eyes are closed, I'm very grateful for these testimonies that we heard tonight and the testimonies from our ministries this morning that we heard. God is moving. God is doing such great things in our midst. We're seeing a full house Sunday morning and Sunday night. More people are starting to come out to church Sunday evening and Wednesday night. We're seeing fruitfulness on outreach. God's doing something fresh. I'm feeling a spirit of revival in our midst. And when I told you I felt a shift after this terrible tragedy in Dallas, something like what we felt on 9-11. I know the two aren't uh, comparative. There was so much more carnage uh, uh, on 9-11, but I felt that same kind of thing, that this is going to have a national consequence. And it may, and it, I, I think it is. But the Bible says, where sin abounds, grace does much more abound. Hallelujah. That means that what we're seeing in our church is something that God has ordained for this very time. When sin and prejudice and hatred and violence are manifesting themselves to the degree that they are, the war on terror, uh, the murder of innocent men and women and children, 
All of these things are playing out. We live in a, in a fearful world at a fearful time. But listen, there's a God in heaven uh, who's overseeing the work of God in the church, uh, breathing life, breathing revival. Uh, and I believe the future is nothing but good for the church of Jesus Christ uh, as we become a light in the midst of a very dark uh, and a very violent uh, world. So as our heads are bowed tonight, I know this was a little bit of a different type of Message that I ministered tonight, winning the race war in America. But perhaps you've come to church tonight and you're not saved. You're not a Christian. You're not right with God. You don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. You have not been born again. You don't know what it is to experience sins forgiven. And if you would honestly examine the content of your heart, there's a lot of things inside of you that are so very unpleasant. Guilt and fear, confusion. Spirit of suicide is so prevalent today in young people. Depression, people on various kinds of medication to try to find peace of mind. And of course, the solution, as I said, is not a political solution. It's not going to be produced when a certain political party wins or another one loses, it's going to happen when God is able to touch the hearts of men and women. It's what it's going to take to change your life. It's not another boyfriend, another girlfriend, a better job, a new location, a different set of friends. But it's when you open your heart to Jesus and you let him touch you from the inside out. I cannot describe, I don't have the words to describe what it feels like when you truly give your heart to Christ and then your sins are forgiven and you're made into a new person. That happens in a moment's time. It'll happen tonight for some, I'm sure. It happened for numerous people this morning and last night and the night before and the night before that in our various ministries and services and outreaches. And it can happen to you tonight. You don't have to live with hatred for other people. You don't have to live with anger and bitterness and rage. That's not your only option. There's genuine and real forgiveness. There's the experience of having Christ establish His presence in your life. A miracle of transformation. Have you not wanted to be different and to change and to be made into another man or woman? Somehow, some way, you've longed for something to happen that will change your life. Well, this is the only thing. Everything else is a fraud, is a counterfeit, drugs or alcohol or relocating yourself or All of those things, New Year's resolutions, nothing affects the heart. Only Christ can forgive your sin, change your life. And that's the appeal we make to you tonight. And if if that describes you and you want to receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, tonight I want to pray for you that this miracle will happen in your life tonight. And so, therefore, I would like to ask you to lift your hand up right now. Lift your hand right up so that I can pray for you tonight and put it right back down in the name of Jesus. Amen. God bless you. Is there anyone else? Lift your hand right up. 
I want to repent. I know I need to pray. I need Jesus. I don't want to live the way I've been living a moment longer. Would you lift your hand up tonight? Lift it up so that I can see it, and then I'll pray for you this evening. You're not right with God, but you want to get right. You know there's sin in your life. You've tried everything to change. Nothing works. I'm giving you the answer tonight. The answer is not me. The answer is Christ. Jesus said you must be born again. The problem is your sin, and the need is for us to repent of our sins. God, I'm sorry, and I want to receive you, your love, into my life. Would you lift your hand right now all over this building in Jesus' name? Thank God. He loves you. He cares about you. He died for your sins. Lift your hand right up. I want to repent. Maybe you're backslidden. You know, things like what I preach tonight cannot coexist forever. We hold on to our prejudice. Or anything, we could be holding on to greed or covetousness or some form of disobedience in our lives. And maybe you're here tonight and you have held on to things that are not conducive to Christ growing in you. You're not right with God tonight. And you need to rededicate your life to Christ. I wonder if you'd lift your hand. God bless you, brother. I see that. Thank you very much. Anyone else? You'd lift your hand. Thank you. Anyone else? I need Jesus. All right. If you raised your hand, I want you to look at me. Did you mean that? You want prayer tonight? Amen. I believe that you meant that. You meant that? I believe you did. I want you to come. Would you come right now and let us pray with you? Amen. God is good tonight. There may be others here this evening as you're coming. Thank you. You pray a sinner's prayer with these people. Amen. Thank God. There may be others here. It's not too late for you to come as well. God, I want you to cleanse from my heart. That's all I can do. All I can deal with is my own heart. I don't want to encompass in my life any kind of racism, prejudice. Jesus paid no mind to the racial and cultural divides. And neither should we. Healing and victory in the race war comes at this altar as God heals us and we can propagate a message of Christ's love to the world. Jesus didn't die on the cross and raised from the dead to recognize racial and economic divide. He came to bring people of every sort together in the bonds of God's household of faith. And we need to pray for that arena 
to be established in our congregation, in our church. And I believe it's here for the most part. But I know my own heart, and we all can succumb to the spirit of the age and begin to exhibit the very thing that we've talked about tonight. So let's all stand. Altars are open. I want you to come and find a place to pray. Let's talk to God about the need of our hearts. We're going to sing as you come. In the name of Jesus, hallelujah. Oh, God, you're worthy to be praised. You're worthy to be glorified. You're worthy to be exalted. Your name, O Lord, is high above every name, and there is no other name given whereby we must be saved but the name of Jesus. O God, manifest your authority, power, and dominion at this altar tonight, O God. God, I pray that you would establish your love in our hearts. I cast down, O God, all prejudice, Lord. Every stronghold, O God, that is not of you in our lives, Lord. Thank you, Father. Oh, God, we glorify your name. We worship you above all else. Hallelujah. You know, if we would be honest, our hearts are susceptible to this. Somebody offends us in life, all of a sudden we're divided. We don't want to forgive. We don't want to reconcile. We want to be angry. People carry their upset toward others. For weeks, months, sometimes years and decades, they impart it to their children. So it's not just the general principle of racism that I'm talking about. It's the division that comes when we offend one another and then we get angry and then we're divided. The church is supposed to be a place where those sort of things are healed. Yes, we're vulnerable. Yes, we can get offended. Yes, we can get angry. But we need to have enough of God in us to get on our knees and repent. And forgive the one that has offended us and make every effort to reconcile. Amen. This is what Jesus intended for the church. Place of acceptance for everybody. Place of love for everybody. Or we don't favor one over another. And winning the race war in America is going to begin with revival in the church, not with legislation, 
It can only come by a move of God. That's the only thing that will push back in our inner cities, in the hearts of men and women, among different people groups. It's the only thing that will cure the human heart. It's a revival of repentance. Hallelujah. Father, I pray right now that the love of Christ would prevail in your church. We shall be known by our love for one another. Let the love of Christ work to enable us to shed all the things that divide. Let every offense be forgiven. Let us lay down our arms that we've wielded against one another, Lord, and let the love of Christ prevail and let us be the solution the people through whom you can move and work to demonstrate what real love is to the world that is so desperate for it, God. There's so much hatred, so much violence. Let the revival in this congregation have impact throughout our city and nation and world, Lord, and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's sing that song again, Worshiping the Lord. You pray. As long as you'd like tonight, you can go back to your seats if you're done praying. Let's sing. Whatever song you have there will work. On this Above every name, O oh God. I worship you. 